Welcome to an episode of Weekly Weights. We lift weights and we are mates. On the weekend, we go on dates. Weekly Weights, Tim and Buddy. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. Okay, good news and bad news. Um, good news is we're back in the studio for for a duo episode, which we haven't done for a while. Bad news is my neighbors continue to renovate. Um, anybody who's listening to this who's a client of mine has heard some drilling in the background of every video I've sent them for a while. The drilling has stopped. I think they're on their lunch break, but I'm hoping we can get through this with a minimum of interference. So More drilling done upstairs than in your bedroom, hey, Will? <laughs> that's absolutely correct. And on that exact note, um, we actually have some questions in our audience request form. People probably think that that was just a really clumsy, bad transition by me, but it's not a clumsy or bad transition because um, the guy who sent this in, Brokeback Jim, obviously listened to our answer recently about approaching gym crushes where Alex and I put on our pickup artist hats, um, the hats that Alex obviously doesn't use anymore because he's engaged and for me never seemed to quite fit. Um, and, and we spoke a bit about romance. So we've got a couple of more questions pertaining to romance to deal with straight off the bat. We're going to talk a little bit about um, about sort of our mindset and approaching training and how like assessing ourselves and thinking about our strengths as a lifter might impact our training approach. Um, and we're also going to debut a new segment today, aren't we, Alex? We are. It's, it might be hit or miss. It could be hit or miss. Look, I think it's going to be hit. The segment is called Do You Remember? And to be honest, it's just, it's rank nostalgia baiting. That's all it is. It's it's a chance for us to talk about things that we know everybody's going to feel good with us talking about. Um, so we're going to debut the segment to um, Do You Remember? So lots of cool stuff to do. Let's start with these questions. So guys, a reminder that the audience request form is accessible through the bio of the Weekly Weights Instagram page. It's also accessible through the bio of my Instagram page. There you can leave random Q&A stuff. You can leave us guest requests. You can also leave us um, <clears throat> specific exercises you want us to talk about in our variation masterclass um, segment as well. But these, we've got two questions. They're from Brokeback Jim, who seems to be a man of of some, I guess, romantic persuasion. Um, <laughs> and the first one, let's do the pecs one first. The first one is this. Um, Tim Starr, he says... Once stated, no pecs, no sex. With this in mind, there must be a bench number where serious diminishing returns on shagging set in. What do you think this point is? And does it really matter if you can bench more than three plates? So I just want to interpret that quickly. Alex and I were talking about it off air. I think what Brokeback Jim is saying here is there must be a point at which you bench enough to pretty much guarantee yourself to have sex appeal and more than that isn't going to add to your sex appeal or is only going to add to a small degree. Is that how you're reading it, Alex? Yeah, that's exactly how I read the question. But the my first issue with this is with Tim Starr himself. I actually don't know who Tim Starr is. So Tim Starr is this like mimi, I think Chinese guy. Okay. Could do a quick Google search, Will, while, yeah. while I'm talking. I'm like the Jamie on Jamie. And he, yeah. he's just this skinny Chinese, I think he's Chinese guy, who does these like silly meme videos um, where he says like no pecs, no sex, and he's like literally never lifted a weight in his life. Oh, doesn't doesn't he have a couple of ones of him like working out that are, are a complete joke though? I actually, oh, the whole thing is a complete joke. Okay, I don't actually know. I haven't seen a lot of him, but I know yeah roughly who he is. Anyway, my first issue with it is that he's never lifted in his life, and he doesn't have any pecs. 
but claims to have sex. So that's the first that's the first issue. Does it really matter? I would say no. So you're saying no pecs at all required. So no pecs, possibly sex. Well, if Tim if if you're going by what Tim starts saying, right. he has no pecs. So obviously he's either saying he doesn't have sex himself or that it's not important. I think that's a really salient argument, but I want to take it in a completely different direction again. I think if we can take what he's if we ta- can take what he's saying by merit, yeah. I don't think it matters how much you can bench. I certainly and hope not. <laughs> I, I was just, I was just going to say that. Um, I want to take it in a different direction because while we're talking about internet celebrities or you know people whose celebrity has been born on the internet anyway, Jordan Peterson. Because Jordan Peterson, the man who you know tells you to live your life like a lobster, also says that you should stand up tall and puff your chest out and that doing so is going to make you lead a better life. And I do think that there's something to be said for women to be attracted to confidence. So I think having the confidence to put your pecs forward in your posture. What happens when you do that, Will? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. But it's not about that. It's about the vibe. I'm saying stand up tall with your back straight, open your chest to the world. So give the pecs some air possibly more sex what do you think women like confidence yeah look i think women are to a point attracted to obviously confidence i think that's more important than physique but also physique itself yeah but like, you know, okay well let me if you bench way too much and your shoulders are really like rounded and internally rotated because you're just really tired or maybe you're one of those powerlifting benches who's really retract and depressed and you can actually open up really well good thoracic extension yeah but possibly you could actually look worse posturally so i think it depends how you bench yeah i think that we're gonna go we could could probably talk about this for 30 minutes (laughs) easily i'm gonna i'm gonna say that if there is a point where diminishing returns on shagging set in i god hopes i haven't found it yet because there's not much shagging going on over here what do you think alex i mean i definitely think once you've reached a certain point no one cares how much you can lift and that's and that's with all lifts like if you can bench somewhere between 137 and a half onwards <laughs> <laughs> yeah then I, you know you're pretty strong yeah and I, you know if you're below that you're yeah, you got some work to do yeah you're just a beta male if you bench less <laughs> than that that's for sure all right um i'm sensing a little bit of bench insecurity among brokeback gym glad i don't share that because the second question is, again, pertaining to romance. We we should probably turn this into a dating advice show. I feel like we could really help some people. Sarah Wheel said we should call it weekly dates. Oh, that's not bad. So the question is, I went on a date the other day. And upon telling the lovely lass I was a powerlifter, she asked how much I could bench. My question is, how do I circumvent that question whilst educating her on how the deadlift is a better measure of total body strength? All this must be done without her being able to identify me as an insecure narcissist. What do you reckon? Like I said earlier, no one cares how much you can lift, but bench seems to be the ones, the one where people who don't actually lift are more interested in. So I think that immediately goes on a bit of a pedestal. But if we're talking about functional um, training that, you know, translates to the bedroom, the deadlift is the clear winner. Yeah, well, look, I completely agree with both your premises, both that more people care about bench than other lifts and that the deadlift probably more closely resembles what allegedly you would do in the bedroom. Um, 
But I think, I think there's two issues with answering this question, like as in answering the question that was proposed to our boy here on his date. If you answer, I bench this, and then you start making excuses, then you come across as insecure and, you know, and a bit dorky, particularly because most girls, unless they're powerlifters themselves, if you say you bench 80 or 90 or 100 kilos, again, I think it's plenty. So if you say, I bench 100, but, you know, my arms are pretty long and, like, I've had some shoulder And injuries. with the comp pause and... Yeah, you know, it's different. Yes, yeah, it's different. In the comps, you've got to pause it on your chest. It's much harder. If you do that, <laughs> you've already lost. Um, and if you also refuse to answer and say, let's not talk about bench press, because obviously the deadlift is a much better, you know, measure of total body strength, then you sound evasive. So... See, I, w- I would disagree with that last point, Will. I would almost play it off as if it's like, ah, it's whatever. Like, oh yeah, bench a fair bit, you know, doesn't really matter. Yeah. I mean, you could do, <laughs> you could do that. I would be inclined to be honest. If you wanted to impress your date, I would say, how much do you bench? And when they say, you know, 40 kilos, you go more than that easily. Right. And then, <laughs> and then you've clearly got them. Or going. because yeah. she's never going to actually see you bench ever. You just lie. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah, 160. Yeah, ask how much her uncle used to bench in high school and then say, yeah, more than that. Yeah, five kilos more than that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, the best way to not be an insecure narcissist is to lie. What do you reckon? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're definitely wrong in trying to argue that one lift is more important than the other lift because in the grand scheme of things, none of them are important at all. Mm. So I think your best bet is either lie or play it off as if it's like not much of a deal yeah oh and in all seriousness what alex said about the fact that like anybody who doesn't do powerlifting is probably going to be impressed by any number no matter how mediocre it is um is absolutely true um and i think we but that said though the standards for like what people consider a good bench press are much more in line with what powerlifters believe than the other two lifts yeah like if you tell someone you squat 200 like they'd be like, oh, wow, that's actually impressive. But if you told them that you bench 120, they'd be like, oh, is that it? Yeah. Well, I guess, I mean, like, I guess like that's more, true. More to like people who just attend the gym see people benching more often than they would see people squatting big. Yeah, but I know girls who go to the gym all the time and would see people bench who bench a lot who couldn't tell you how much weight's on the bar. Like, they don't care. They're just like, oh, that guy's big and he pressed a lot. And to be honest, like Alex said, people do care a bit about your physique. If you are a healthy-looking young person who is clearly passionate about going to the gym and you bench press at all, Chances are, to them, you look fine. You're probably strong enough to get by in everyday life. If they don't like you for how much you bench press, they're not worth liking themselves. And if you think that they will like you more for inflating your bench numbers, then you've probably got problems anyway. So, like, just YOLO, man. And also lie. To be fair, though, like, you can't really win in this situation. No, I think that's why it's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) And he's obviously trolling and we've spent way too much time. So, we've been trolled. We have been trolled, but I mean, let me put it another way. I've been single on and off for a while. Bench has been stagnant the whole time. Might be time to, you know, put the hammer down on my bench press training. What do you think, Alex? Time to settle down. Have you been trying? Yeah, it's not, well, yeah, it's just not working, is it? All right, let's move on. <laughs> but that's because that's because it's harder in competition, and also your arms are long. Yeah, it's stuff. true. A couple of shoulder injuries back in the day. Feet have to be flat. Um, it's pretty tough. Let's move on to let's move on to the actual topic of today. We're only twenty minutes in, or whatever. Um, 
I put out a questionnaire recently on my Instagram and and the thing that inspired me doing it was I was listening to a podcast while we're talking about um you know the lack of sex that happens in this place I was listening to a podcast about video games um it's called the psychology of video games podcast it's really interesting and they had this guy on and they were talking about you know how how video games can make us happy and the psychologist who was talking was talking about the intersection between video games and positive psychology and positive psychology is just largely interested in like in thinking about your strengths and the things that you do have as opposed to your deficits and the re- the reason he said video games are kind of helpful in that regard is in a video game you t- you solve the obstacles in front of you on the basis of your character's strengths so rather than being you know you like fixated on or focused on or even necessarily aware of your character's limitations you just look around the world and think like, what are the opportunities, you know, for me to to leverage these character strengths? And in games that let you play with various different builds, um, you know, if you choose a whatever, like a mage build or something that casts spells, you don't think about the fact that your character is more physically frail. And if you choose, if you choose, you know, a warrior build or somebody who is really strong, you don't think about the fact that you can't cast spells. You think like, how can I leverage this stuff? And I thought, you know, that actually is kind of pertinent to powerlifting or is pertinent to training. To put it in a non-nerdy way, <laughs> yeah, go let's on. give a sport analogy. Sports are a good so one. So this is the one that, that you gave when you were talking about the different sort of categories in this questionnaire. Yeah. When you were talking to me about it before you actually put it up, is you said, you know, imagine you create a 2K player from scratch. Yeah. And like, for instance, Steph Curry would have like 99 three-point, but he would be limited in other areas. Yeah. Like, you know, if you're playing with Steph Curry on 2K... Yeah, you don't try like, to dunk on people, you're not gonna, you? Yeah, you're not trying to like block people's shots and you're not trying to like lock people down on defense. Like, you're going to take advantage of what you're good at versus like focus on what you're bad at. Yeah, absolutely. And as I was saying, that has pertinence to, I think, how we go about training because a lot of people are acutely aware of their deficits you know Brokeback Jim's obviously aware of his issues with bench press sex Um, deficit yeah maybe Um, we don't know maybe he's just wanting to know like when is enough enough you never know but um, but people are aware of their deficits and we fixate on them because like part of intelligently planning training is assessing those deficits and confronting them but I think it's also really useful to say well hey like what unique attributes could make me an effective trainee, you know, when I look at myself, what strengths do I have and how can I leverage these strengths to make the most of the the build that I have? Um, And so I put together this questionnaire. I spoke to Alex beforehand and we thought like, what are some, um, what are some just like sort of broad traits that we might be able to, we might be able to assess people on or ask them to assess themselves on that would give an idea, a picture of sort of the totality of them, the lifter. So I broke it down into physical traits, um, being you know things to do with coordination things to do with recovery and tolerance to training and some basic anthropometric stuff some mental or psychological traits so they were things to do with process orientation how oriented towards novelty you are how curious you are your ability to control arousal your ability to analyze and reframe training um your ability to persist in the um in the face of difficulty and then your training resources so you know where you train who you train with how much knowledge you have how much time you have and things like that and what I sort of expected in my mind is you would see almost like broad categories of people. You would see the people who are who are maybe physically gifted um, but not highly analytical lifters or lifters who are highly analytical and highly resourced in training but less physically gifted and things like that coming through. 
And that where we'd have discussions with those people having answered the questionnaire, we might be able to say, well, like, you know, hey, you, you see yourself this way and you see yourself as strong in these ways. What can we do in your training planning or in your approach to training to make the most of it? Um, so today, Alex answered the questionnaire. We might go through it and pick out one or two things about it. But broadly, we're just going to talk about like this concept of like, why is it valuable to look at yourself, pick out your strengths and weaknesses, or, and particularly your strengths and focus on them? Uh, yeah, I think it'd be good if we could go through, um, use me as an example and go through, you know, what my score might mean in regards to prescribing training or mm. like making changes to the plan or the way that you communicate with someone, etc. Sure. So before we even do that, um, <clears throat> First thing to first thing to note, if you do choose to do this, it's accessible again through my bio and my Instagram, is that the questionnaire is not a validated measure of anything. So there's no reason for me to assume that if you rate yourself a nine out of 10 in gross coordination, that that means anything relative to anybody else. Um, and there's also no reason for me to assume that were you to rate yourself once a week for the next three weeks that you would even be internally consistent. So it's not actually about measuring anything in any objective way it's more about getting an indication of what your self-perception is at the time and then using that to spur a conversation about what you might want to do in your training and just to get you thinking through that process or yeah thinking through this process of you know where am i good or where am i bad how how, um how much of a difference do you think people could answer on a day by day week by week month by month kind of deal like do you think if people are having a particularly difficult training cycle they might answer differently or they're feeling a bit neg about their training they might answer differently yeah i don't know um one because i just don't know enough about psychology and two part of the purpose of doing validations like and actually seeing how consistent are people's ratings of themselves was to establish exactly that but i think that there are some people who are more emotionally labile than others who would probably change their assessments a lot and there are some people who are more flat and objective. And that's actually one of the things we almost ask about in this questionnaire. So I think person to person, the amount that it would change would change a lot. And there are also things in the questionnaire that are that are like real fixed traits. Like I ask about limb lengths. I'd say that you're going to assess your limbs as roughly the same length all the time. But there might be things like process orientation and novelty orientation where, you know, day by day and week by week, you might change. Like I myself would rate myself as reasonably oriented towards novelty because I do like change. I like exploring different things, but there are times when I'm extremely directed and really just want to do powerlifting training. Where were you to ask me the same thing? I'd knock my novelty orientation down a considerable way. So yeah, like if you're in the middle of a comp prep, yeah, you'd probably don't want any novelty. No, exactly. And so, and so I think being, being aware of the fact that some of this stuff probably can change. Not all these characteristics are immutable is helpful because again, if it's meant to spur a discussion with a coach or, you know, or a discussion with yourself about what you can do in training, then acknowledging that this stuff isn't going to be fixed forever and revisiting these questions and asking like, you know, who am I right now? And what can I do in training is still useful. Mm. Um, so let's talk through Alex's answers. So in physical traits, um, like I said, there are a few to do with coordination. So the two, the two are gross coordination, which is just how easily do you pick up and perform large motor movements? And then there's kinesthetic awareness and control, which is more like your ability to sense where your body is in space, what muscles. Oh, no. All right, we thought we had technical difficulties. We don't. So kinesthetic awareness and control is how great of a sense do you have of where your body is in space, which muscles are working, etc., and like how easily can you modify them. 
So the idea there is just to basically ask how easily do you learn skills and how well do you feel like you feel your body and sort of take that into account. Alex, you rated yourself really highly on both of them, uh, nine out of 10. Um, and I'm curious, why did you rate yourself that way? Um, I feel like I've always had good um, ability to control my body and understand where I am and how to move. <laughs> and I honestly would have put 10 if I um, wasn't, like if I, I didn't, didn't want to be arrogant about it, I was going to put 10. Right. So that was probably pretty arrogant, but whatever. No, that's fine. Like, as in, I've known you for a long time. You do pick up motor skills pretty easily. And like, if I throw a ball at you, you're going to catch it. Like, it's yeah. it's fine. Um, What have you found that... But yeah, particularly in a powerlifting sense, like, the sports that I've played require such a broad ability in terms of, you know, moving all the way from your fingers to your toes. Yeah. Whereas powerlifting is very, very simple. It's static. There's no sort of dynamic there shouldn't be much movement outside of just the lift itself so i find i feel like with regards to powerlifting it's if you come from a background where you do a lot of movement and you understand how to move athletically it's really easy yeah so for yourself would you perceive that as a strength yeah when has that been useful to you uh it's a good question well like I would rate myself very highly on both of them as well for the same reason. I'm probably less grossly coordinated than I used to be because now if I throw a footy, it's pretty bad. Um, but but I would rate myself highly on them and it's meant that when I go to like pick up new variations and things, I reasonably quickly acclimate to them, um, which is good. And that also that ties in with the fact that I, I like novelty. It means I can cycle lifts relatively quickly. I can pick up a movement lesson from them very quickly because I sense distinctions in how I perform between lifts quickly. Like, you know, it's and it's useful to me. I can integrate stuff quickly. So that's great. It means that, like I said, I can modify lifts. And it also means that if I'm wanting to cue myself to take a different position, sometimes I don't even need as much modification of a lift. So you might have some clients who are like a little bit less coordinated where to learn how to say, like create a stacked torso position you really need to like give them a front-loaded squat that's like highly regressed and stuff because they just don't have that awareness of what's going on. Whereas for me, I know that provided the load's not crazily heavy, I can actually just think myself into that position and feel whether I'm doing it or not. Mm. So in that way, it's always been a strength of mine and it's been, it's been very helpful for me in learning, learning powerlifting. Um, I would actually say that I lack that to a much greater degree in my upper body than I do in my lower body and that's one of the reasons why I find bench difficult is sometimes I don't even realize where my body is in space. But for lower body stuff, it's super easy for me, and it also makes like diagnosis of form breakdown and so on for me way easier. I want to pick. I want to pick into that. Will do you think that because, like, you played mostly rugby? Mm. What sport did you play in like the summer? Not uh, much. I alternated between like cricket and basketball and but things. Like, I was always bad at them. Yeah, like okay. I just mucked around. So, do you think that part of that is because when you played rugby, obviously you were forward, you didn't have your hands on the ball a lot. You were doing more work like in close quarters and, you know, like tackling and stuff and being big. Yeah. Do you think that because you weren't like sort of a ball player slash ball handler that that's affected you long term? Maybe. Um, I would actually look at it the other way, which is to say that because I started learning how to scrummage when I was like nine years old and spent all that time learning to like brace and create tension through my torso and you know, feel where my back was straight or when my back was bent and push into the ground with both legs at a time, like that, that actually primed me really well for learning squatting and deadlifting. Mm. Um, but certainly the reverse is the reverse is true too. You know, maybe had I done gymnastics or something like that, 
where I'd spent a lot more time using my hands, I would have had that same thing develop. But but I'm not sure, you know. I would say it's more that I developed a really big strength early in the other things than that I like neglected my upper body, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, but it yeah. does make sense. Um, but what about for you? So I asked you, do you perceive those things as a strength? Do you, do you look at them in the same way that I did? Yeah, absolutely. Like I completely vibe with what you're saying on being able to um, just sort of think about a position and just be able to put yourself there versus like, you know, we have clients where we have may have to like physically move them into the position that we want to be. Whereas like for me, I just pick those things up really quickly. And it's always been the case um, ever since I did any lifting when I was about 15. It's like, oh, do a hang clean. I just watch someone do it. And then it's like, okay, I can do it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's extremely helpful with anything in sport really. Okay. Um, what about, so the next three questions are to do with sort of tolerance of training. So I asked about volume tolerance. So how well do you handle just large quantities of exercise? That's acute and chronically intensity um, tolerance is how well do you handle heavy training? And then specificity tolerance was how well do you handle training with little variation? So does it cause you lots of niggles and things? If you only focus your efforts on one or two things at a time, um, you rated yourself kind of moderately in volume tolerance, you know, um, like six out of 10. Intensity tolerance and specificity tolerance, you rated yourself more in that eight range on both of them, which is like pretty high. So again, I'm curious, why do you see yourself that way? Um, I always get more beat up doing total, like more total work than I do doing work at the top end. Mm-hmm. Um and that's certainly changed like a lot the more I get into powerlifting, the more I'm able to handle heavier loads more regularly and the worse I get at doing a lot of sets in one session. Like my ability to do... See, I probably should have rated myself lower than a six to be fair. Like my ability to do a lot of work in one given session is pretty low actually. Um, and particularly where I used to be when I was playing basketball a lot and playing footy and training... I was just able to just keep going, keep going, keep going. And now I'm not doing all of that back-end work. I'm not able to get through the amount of work that I am in the gym as well. Okay. So, I mean, that sounds like something that you would perceive as as either neutral or a weakness. Is that true? I'd say pretty neutral, yeah. Okay. Um, but intensity tolerance and specificity tolerance, you rate it quite highly. You might look at them as strengths. When you think about yourself in that respect, like, you know, what training you handle well... Um, and what training you seem to respond to well, what does that tell you about the picture of like how your training should be? Well, I I do well with the competition lifts. And when you take me away from the competition lifts, um, I have a sort of much weaker base than most people would. So like my high bar squat versus my low bar squat would be a bigger gap than most people. My beltless deadlift versus my comp deadlift would be a bigger gap than most people. And stuff like that. So for me, like, I mean, you could, that could go one of two ways. It could, you could say, oh, okay, well, this is a weakness. You know, you should be training what you're bad at to help you bring up what you're good at. Or you could look at it in the other way. So I guess it depends which angle you're going to come from in that respect. Well, something I've observed with you is you tend to do quite well where, like you said, your volumes are moderate but where you get yourself into that like productively heavy intensity and then you make a lot of things move quite crisply. Um, and you know where you avoid too much breakdown of your motor pattern and because you're quite athletic you've always been able to like produce 
produce a lot of force and get a lot of effective work out of not much work. Would you say that's true? Yeah, 100%. And does that type of training also sort of tie in with what you like? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So again, this like this is an example of the purpose of this question. Were I having this discussion with another client, another client, an actual client, then, then that might be... Yeah, sorry, JP. <laughs> yeah, sorry, mate. You've lost him. <laughs> um, yeah, that might that might inform how I would think about training them in the future. So for myself, were I to answer these, I would rate my volume tolerance as high but lower than it used to be for mm. similar reasons to you. Yeah, I would say mine used to be like a nine. Yeah, like, same. fuck, man, like 10 hours of basketball a week, six hours of gym training, like, you know, yeah. heaps. So I would rate my volume tolerance higher than Alex's, but maybe not as high as it used to be. So say it was an eight. And my intensity tolerance may be a little bit lower, but moderate. And my specificity tolerance actually a decent amount lower. Um, I can get through a decent amount of deadlifts until I'm beaten up and then I can't do shit. And my bench suffers from too much specificity and my squat goes really well until it just tanks when I start getting really tight. So for me, looking at that, I'd say, you know, that probably I should do a decent amount of variety and bear in mind that, again, that ties in with my disposition in that I like a bit of novelty and I learn things quickly, so variety is fine. So I should probably do a decent amount of variety my volumes should probably be reasonably moderate and I should reserve my specificity for maybe later in training cycles. And again, when I think about like, when have I been most productive? I've often done reasonably power ability-esque training and then had reasonably acute peaks that are highly specific and that goes quite well for me. So, so that ties in with my experience in my own training and like also the things that I would like to do. Mm-hmm. All right, and then the last few were anthropometric stuff. So I asked basically how Jack's do you think your upper body and lower body are and how long do you think your arms and legs are? Um, again, these are, I mean, how jacked you are is a changeable characteristic. How long your arms and legs are isn't really going to change much. Alex, you basically said that you were six out of 10 and seven out of 10 jacked for your upper and lower body respectively, that your arms are relatively longer than your legs. So basically your upper body is a little bit less muscly and your lo- limbs are a bit longer and your lower body is a little bit more muscly and your limbs are a bit shorter. Um, what does that tell you about your strengths and weaknesses as a lifter? Well, it's pretty obvious. Long arms and more lower body mass equals bigger, better deadlift. Yep. Um, I'd say I'd probably redo that and say my limbs are five. I bang on average for my lower body. Like right. my torso and legs are pretty much well in proportion. Yep. Um, and because I have more mass on my lower body than upper body, I squat pretty well. Yeah. I mean, again, broadly true. So maybe if I was having this discussion again with a client, what I might say is, okay, well, like, you know, you've noticed you're pretty, like you're pretty jacked in your lower body and your your limb lengths are somewhere between neutral and favorable and you like a lot of specificity. So maybe let's focus on training, you know, the squat and deadlift largely as skills, which again, you do, you train, you know, a decent number of reps and reserve, moderate intensity is quite a lot and you get a lot of transfer from that. But your upper body, you've tended to benefit from a bit more bench volume. Would you say that's true? Um, yeah, I guess in the last few years, true, but recently not at all because I've been injured. Your shoulder's been shit. Um, yeah. But yeah, I tend to do better with upper body training that is harder than lower body, than my lower body training. Right, like, like quite a bit harder. Right. Um, the next few things were mental and psychological traits. So um, I'll try and I'll try and kind of group these. So the first few were things we've alluded to, which were process orientation. So how drawn are you towards following an order, an orderly set of steps towards a goal? 
Novelty orientation was basically how much change do you like to keep things interesting in the long term? Um, and does repetition make things boring? And then curiosity was how often do you ask, you know, you find yourself asking questions about why you're doing things and do you like, you know, exploring things just for the sake of self-experimentation? So all of them, you rated yourself reasonably highly. And I don't think that they're, they're at all contradictory. Um, you rated yourself as highly process-oriented, like eight out of 10. Um, seven out of 10 novelty oriented and nine out of 10 um, curiosity. What, again, what does that mean for you in terms of the training that you most enjoy? Well, I, the difficult one to answer there was not, was about novelty because I like lots of novelty and I like lots of change to my accessory work that I do. Like if I do a barbell row, I get pretty sick of it after six weeks and I want to change to a penlay row or a chessboard row or like something else like that. Yeah. Um, whereas I could do low bar squats and comp bench and conventional deadlifts all year. So that one was kind of a bit difficult to answer. Like I like the comp lifts all the time, but the other stuff has to change. Um, as far as being process oriented, like, you know, I don't think anyone who lasts in powerlifting this long could really answer anything lower than a six year because it's pretty hard to, to stay in it, um, without being process oriented. Would you agree with that? I would. And then you also said that curiosity, you were reasonably curious. So so by that, do you mean that you like to you like to experiment with things and see if they worked for you or you just like to ask the question of why am I doing this? Yeah, more ask the question. Like I have I have pretty like set in stone well not set in stone, but like I have things that I tend to think work and within that framework I like to chop and change things to see you know where can I get the most uh, from but for me that's mostly to do with my own coaching in like I'll like to try something myself to see if I can use it with my clients as well yeah so that's not really me specific but more like to help my clients so I I'm also I would say I'm quite process oriented and I'm pretty curiosity oriented and the way that they intersect for me is I've had thoughts of, I reckon this would benefit me. I'll do it for six months and see if it helps, which is quite a long time to commit to an idea. But if I'm like, I have a good reason to think that something will work. It seems enjoyable at face value. um, And like, I certainly don't think it will not help. Then I'm willing to commit to try something because the process of discovering what I discover in the process of doing it and seeing if I have results is like really satisfying to me. Mm, I agree. And so that's always meant that like I like having a bit of agency in how I plan my training because if I have intuitions about I think this will work or at least I want to try this to know, um, then it makes me much more excited to get in and train when I do those yeah. things. Yeah, and, and that's that's kind of how the relationship between JP and I has developed mm. over the last three years is we have chats every now and again about, you know, he'll say, oh, what do you think was good about that block what would you like to do differently what do you think can work in the next block and then i'll basically ask him the same questions and then we'll find some sort of you know maybe he strongly disagrees with one or two things and i strongly disagree with one or two things um and then we meet somewhere in the middle on a few but most of the time we tend to agree on most things Mm. um but yeah yeah and i think also having i have like i said a reasonably high orientation to novelty that also means that i like doing things like changing my accessories or changing my secondary lifts. But I can do that within the context of a program where I'm like, I've got an overarching theme that I want to explore. And it also means that I like to have like proper breaks from powerlifting training interspersed through my year. So like for me, that's stuff I enjoy. 
I've had a couple of my clients answer this that have said they're like nine or 10 out of 10 process oriented and like three out of 10 novelty oriented. And they just love doing the same thing over and over again, provided that they're seeing it work. And so for them, for a couple of them, I wrote them new blocks this week where I said, hey, you know, this block has been really good. We're going to do exactly the same thing. Um, and I just want your ending numbers to be higher. So this is how we're going to plan it. And if you want to change any of your accessories or something, then let me know and we'll make those substitutions. But that way I'm sort of leveraging the process oriented aspect where I say, here's where we ended up at week four of this block. We're going to have a deload and then shoot past that by 5% or something. Let's see how you go. And that excites them because they're like, okay, you know, I know the steps I've got to follow. Yeah. And I think it's a, it's a great way to go about it is to have, you know, four, six week short-term goals. Um, you know, you might be doing a block of fives on squat and you say, okay, I want to get my squat five to roughly this number. Mm. Um, and then, you know, all, all of a sudden six weeks has gone by and you, you're six weeks into that longer term goal happening. Yeah. And you break it down again into another six weeks or another four weeks or whatever the case is. Yeah. And that's been something that's been highly motivating for me too. I just like to do it with a lot more change happening around the main lifts than some other people do. Mm. Um, so then the next few were persistence and resilience or persistence slash resilience, which is how capable are you of continuing challenges in spite of difficulty? And do you bounce back from hardship quickly? You rated yourself pretty highly on that too. Yeah, I, I'm seeing you rate yourself very highly on a lot of things. Well, <laughs> what can we say? Um, so, so again, I don't really know how this would impact people's training necessarily, but it might impact like how... Oh, maybe, maybe I could think of ways it would impact training prescription, but it would certainly impact how I discuss things with them as a coach. Because I think some people, when they have a bad training day, it's like a real blow to them emotionally. Whereas others go, oh, bad day. Like I'll leave the gym and come back. What does it mean for you and how you approach training to be like that? Well, yeah, I took this in two ways. So the second way that I took it was the, that second part of the sentence. Do you bounce back from hardship quickly? I think I do very well. Um, you know, I've, I think this just comes back to experience like i've been doing this long enough to know that like it's not all sunshines and sunshine and rainbows yeah like there are some fucking shit sessions and you know you don't get any worse in a session but you sure can get better so if you can tick it off and get to the next one then you're better off than you were when you started and i think that's really important um to be able to just like brush your hands off and say fuck it move on um whereas the first part of the question was how capable are you of continuing challenging tasks in spite of difficulty? So for me, that that was more like in session, if you've done one set and you got three sets to go and the first set was hard and you're like, fuck, I got to get through this. I also think I'm quite good at doing that as well. Yeah, well, I would say that's true. And so it probably just means for you that generally you can knuckle down well when times are tough. You mm. know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I think one way that really helps me with that is being able to switch on and off into... And there's another question about arousal. That's the next one. Yeah. Being able to just completely switch off and have a chat between sets. And then, you know, when my music goes in or when I put my song on at the gym, like now it's time to go. And I think if you're too worried between sets about your next set, it's going to sap your energy and you're going to get pretty cooked pretty soon. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, that that more or less does answer that. Other The other way that I was thinking about arousal control when I put that there is... Um, is you know how some people get a little bit psyched out approaching heavy sets yeah you know some people don't even want to know the weight that's on the bar stuff mm. like that um <clears throat> you know having that skill set like you said of being able to switch on or switch off as you need to is really important um and again for people who are like no i get really intimidated 
by heavy numbers or I get really intimidated having to choose my own numbers or anything that that might that might change how you would go about planning training too um next two are analytical skills and reframing skills so analytical skills is how good are you at objectively appraising your training um and how well do they inform your later efforts and then reframing skills are how good are you at turning negatives into positives or setbacks into future like challenges and opportunities again eight out of ten on both of them um and I can understand why you would would have rated yourself that way. Um, how do you use your analytical skills yourself when you train? Um, for me, it's mostly just like rating RPE and comparing it to my best effort. Um, that's probably what I do the most often. Um, you know, my technique is kind of is what it is now. It's not really going to be changing much forever, really. Um, so for me, it's just about kind of figuring out like how close I am to where I would like to be from a, like, what was the load on the bar? How difficult was it? What's the context of the plan? How much time do I have left for a comp? How heavy is my body weight? You know, like weighing up all of those things. Um, and for, for reframing skills, you said you were eight out of 10 as well. Yeah, I think probably I'm actually probably better than eight, like, you know, I've been through some fucking really bad preps and kept moving and found always found positives in everything. And I don't know why that is. Would you have any comment on that? Uh, I don't know. Just lack of imagination. <laughs> nah, I've got lots of imagination. Two for nine and I'm happy. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a good day. That's a subtotal PB. I made two. <laughs> um... Yeah, I would have probably rated myself reasonably similarly on both of them um, and for quite similar reasons. And I think for me, those analytical skills help because they help sort of smooth out some of the bumps when you do have a bad day. Mm. You know, and probably that does tie back into into that stuff that we were talking about. Like, yeah. um, So I think that's very helpful. It helps me sort of stay on the straight and narrow. And it also makes me really good when I do set those shorter term goals like you were talking about in sort of planning my efforts because I can say well like you know if in four weeks time I want to do this then if I just go in and execute this today then I'm going to be really on the way there and that gives me a sense of direction that I quite enjoy yeah like if you want to squat you know 230 for five at nine for instance and you're four weeks away from that and you're 15 kilos away and it was at seven like you know you're roughly on the way there yeah for for an example I think for for the analytical analytical skills one thing that I can be better at and I know this probably applies to literally everyone listening, is um, feeling better about training when it's going, like a, a rating training as better than it is when it's going well and rating it as worse than it is when it's going not well. So I think kind of trying to objectify them and sort of bring them back to equilibrium is probably a good idea. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then the reframing skills thing... Um I think partly because I like novelty and I like self-experimentation, even though nobody likes training when training goes badly. And like my last few weeks, I've just been really tired. So my training has been pretty poor. Um, I still learn things in doing that. And oftentimes when training is poor and I do have to make a change, instead of me seeing it as like a, oh, like I have to abandon ship because training is bad. I go, okay, great. Like I'm going to learn some stuff and do some things I wouldn't normally do now. That's cool to me. You know, so I also think, that being able to leverage that strength in me has added some longevity to my training career and given me enjoyment in things that would have probably put other people off. Yeah, what's that quote? You never lose, you only win or learn. Yeah, I don't know who said it though. But like that's 
that's a pretty good way of summarizing that is like you know you can you can either say you've lost and you know this is all bad and cry about it or you can think about maybe why it didn't go your way and improve it for next time yeah and i think that's something that i didn't used to do well and do better now particularly um after having coached for such a long time for sure i think in this instance because alex and i would talk about ourselves so similarly the potential value in being different to us might not have come through as clearly as it would have so i think you know i did explain why having high process orientation and low novelty orientation might give you some programming avenues that would be satisfying but similarly if you were to find yourself being you know not particularly curious and not particularly resilient or something then you might you might be the type of person who goes hey i'm going to find what seems to work and stick with it for as long as i can because i like the comfort of knowing things will work and plan with some degree of conservatism because because that really suits me well and i i enjoy having wins in my training all the time so always programming chances for wins you know and that way you could sort of maximize your emotional returns on training under those circumstances um Again, that's an example. Were you to go through and do this exercise for yourself, you might think of ones for you. Um, Now, the final one was asking about training resources or the final little section. So they were your training partners, your environment, um, training time, energy, and knowledge. So Alex, you said that your training partners are about nine out of 10 knowledgeable and supportive. Um, They might take that as a bit of a knock that they weren't tens. Well, the only reason they weren't tens is because often... I train alone. Right. So like not having a spotter or not having anyone there to cue you or whatever. But so yeah, you're saying that you yourself alone are a nine out of ten. Well, I'm not a good spotter for myself, so no. <laughs> no, that's true. And then the training environment as well, um, you said, you know, it's very well equipped, which is cool, and that your training time you always have adequate time to train. Yep. So those are things that are very obvious strengths that you can leverage. We probably don't need to labor the point. Um, I'm interested, you said your training knowledge is obviously very high as well, but you rated your training energy a little bit lower. So training energy, I said like how much emotional and physical energy do you have to give for your training? Is training an extra stress or an invigorating experience? You actually rated it four out of 10. Um, So that's the first thing that's probably jumped out as being like, oh, this is an actual sort of weakness that I'm seeing here or maybe a negative. Um, Why do you feel that way? I don't think it's a weakness. I just think, well, I think emotional and I think, if you redo this, you should split emotional and physical energy. Yeah. And if you did that, I would probably put my physical energy at like an eight and my emotional energy at like a one. Right. Um, I tend to live my life pretty like narrow between three and six excitement. Right. <laughs> um, and, you know, like I just turn up to train. It doesn't doesn't really excite me a lot. You know, it's cool when, it's, when it goes well, but it's pretty rare times where like I'm really, really excited after training. It's just something that I just do and I enjoy it. So I think like how much emotional energy does it take away from me is pretty little. Right. That doesn't mean that I don't love it and that doesn't fulfill me. But yeah, the amount of energy that I lose emotionally is very low. So again, being that way in training, not being like a screamer manual who's in there like yelling and not being somebody for whom training is like the ultimate thing that excites you. Is there anything about your training approach that you think you could sort of do to just maximize it if you're somebody sort of like just likes to go in and be pretty steady? I don't know. I think it just suits my personality. I would say it almost suits the way in which you like to train as well. You know what I spoke about with like the kind of moderate effort sets that you just execute well and like 
you tick your boxes consistently and you have like pretty consistent plans block by block and stuff like that. Like having that also tied in with that sort of understated emotional approach that kind of makes sense. Mm, and like I, I used to use sort of like hype and emotion to a point where it was like almost fake and it wasn't doing anything for me positively. Yeah. And I've kind of learned, this just all comes from experience, like learning what training I like doing what training I think yields me the best return for what I'm willing to do and then how I need to approach each block, each set, each rep. And for me, like, I like to stay pretty calm unless things are hard, like, and literally unless it's my third deadlift. I'm right. pretty pretty reserved and, like, you know, sort of in my lane. Um, and, and I haven't always been like that and I've kind of, it's kind of taken me a while to sort of get there over time. Sure. It'll so, be six years since I've done my first comp in like four weeks. Yeah, it's crazy, hey? Um, for me, I would actually say really similar things. Like I would say right now that my training energy, I would rate it like a three or a four as well. Um, and that actually does tie in for how I'm training right now and how I most enjoy training, which is because I don't have as much emotional and physical energy to give my training right now as perhaps I have in the past doing training that's a little bit lower intensity that does have a bit of variety and does allow me to switch off has been really enjoyable. So having those elements of variety, having a bit of a bodybuilding focus and stuff and also having more pulsatile blocks. So once where I say I'm going to start easy, work to a really hard week where I, like I see the fruition of my prior efforts and then take it easy again, like all that stuff really suits me because it means instead of me having to be amped four days a week, to go and train and like grind. I can say I'm going to do training that suits my disposition and my physical needs, um, you know, get a little bit of an emotional return from it when I've invested some effort and then just go back to sort of putting pennies in the bank until it's time to look at it again. Yeah, and that's exactly how I approach it as well. Like it might be a couple sets a week where, you know, I need to like really switch properly on and get after it. And then after that, it's like, you know, like it's not like training is so easy that I'm mindlessly going through it. It's like still enough of a challenge, but because like I said, we've been doing this for such a long time. We know exactly what buttons we need to press to get to where we need to go. So it's like, it almost, and I think this will apply to everyone who who's listening. I think the longer that you go in your journey, the less emotional energy you will take up for each session um, because you just get better at managing it. And like, you know, this isn't going to be the same year round. If you're doing competition and you got your hardest squats, like it probably will take a lot of your emotional energy. Um, but, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I see that number would probably trend down over a career. So for you, again, bearing in mind that you do know yourself and your training response reasonably well, that exercise might, have, might not have been incredibly profound. Was it still useful to think about in answering them? Yeah, I was saying to Chrissy earlier, like, it's interesting to think like, oh, what would a seven look like or a nine look like? And, you know, how much difference is there really? And then how does this apply? It's like, it was definitely an interesting thought experiment. And for me, it was more interesting to think about how you would go about trying to maximize those strengths. Did you want to go through some of that now? Well, yeah, I was going to ask. So if you were to describe yourself, like it's hard to say like what's, what are archetypes of a powerlifter? But if you were to describe yourself as one, what would it be? God, I have, no, I have no idea. Honestly, I can like as in I can give it a go because I all like I almost have already, which is to say that like you're like moderately analytical, you're reasonably execution focused, you like consistency and you like consistency in your planning and you don't like to rely 
a lot on emotional energy. So you sit a little bit towards the analytical end of the spectrum, but you're not like a, you're not a technician in the sense that you don't spend all your time trying to absolutely optimize. You spend your time trying to be athletic in lifting. Would you say that's true-ish? Yeah. I mean, this is like powerlifting horoscopes. You know how horoscopes are just kind of bullshit, but like you say stuff and people are like, oh, that's me. Yeah, this is heaps bullshit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so like, um, whereas I would describe myself as still having a little bit of that like analytical, you know, analytical persuasion that you have, but being maybe most orient- like most oriented towards power building and things. So I might, if I were to describe myself in an archetype, it's like an analytical power builder, like somebody who likes some variety, likes to think and have some agency in their training Mm. you know and there might be other archetypes where it's like you're an absolute technician and you're probably highly analytical and there are some people who are like all about dumb effort and blood and guts which is sick as well but if you were to like sit way towards one of those ends of the spectrum then maybe that would inform your programming yeah so let's have a think about that then like let's have let's have a discussion about that if someone was on that blood and guts like you know we're going to war every time we step in the gym (laughs) This is a. I love the comparing is a, training and war thing. This is an animal stuff. pack ad. Yeah, I'm ten hours pack. a week. It's an animal pack ad. Yeah, you know, like how would that inform programming choices that you would make? You, would you get? Would you be looking at giving them more frequent exposure to heavy, high effort heavy sets? Would you be looking at um, maybe cutting down total volume so that they can get more of those sets in? Would you definitely? stray away from stuff that's they would consider too easy yeah i'm not sure because i think it still depends on the person in front of you and like there's only so far you can depart from what like physiologically works but you can change the packaging of your training a bit you know like you and i both said both said that we're kind of analytical we like having some say in our training but we take it in slightly different directions like i like a lot more variety probably block on block than you would um so you can make some nip and tuck to accommodate that if you have somebody who does like to get highly aroused, like you said, um, and there's useful avenues for it, then you'd probably just build some avenues in your training for it. You would maybe give them some top sets that are RPE based rather than having, rather than necessarily having like stepwise progressions. Um, or if you could get them excited about having stepwise progressions where the first one is quite easy and in week three and four, they get chances to push for PBs, you would. you know, Or maybe you would cap blocks with mini tests and things more often to accommodate that um, maybe you would bias more of their training towards variations of the main lifts because they get excited by seeing iron on a bar and less towards machine work like maybe but you got to sort of you got to ask the person and say well what what would you enjoy like what types of things you know evoke the most positive emotional response in you and then lean into that a little bit you know within the constraints of what I think works mm. whereas I think a lot of people who maybe sit on the opposite end of the spectrum who are like you know ultra technical in their approach to lifting they almost avoid doing a lot of the grunt work that they would have to do so so then you sort of say well like how can i give you the avenues to do that technical stuff and then get you to either switch focus entirely or get sufficient volume in to get as much return as we can from your training in terms of just building general muscle and strength and so for somebody like that maybe they would benefit a bit more from clustered sets for volume or something in you know their deadlift or having like accessory days and technique days or something like that. Um, but having some things that sort of throw them a bit of red meat and also give them some of the veggies that they need. Yeah, I think you can, even in the way that you present training, you can change someone, how someone will feel about it. Mm. Like, you know, I, for instance, write notes under each exercise slot 
well, under most exercise slots, which is just basically reminding them of their cues. And yeah, my clients do that. They never read them, but every now and again. And like, you know, if I had someone who, you know, animal pack guy, yeah. you know, I might say like, get the fuck after it. That might be my notes. And then they read that and they go, oh yeah, mad. This is great. Like I get Sick. to push myself on this lift. Yeah. And you know, that's creating that buy-in. But like all of this comes back to what we're doing as coaches in, you know, this is an example of that is like, you're asking the client, what can I do for you? You're not telling them, this is what I can do for you. Mm-hmm. You're asking them so that it can help in, in, you know, improve that buy-in. And that goes back to something that we always talk about. If someone is more engaged and bought into the, um, into their program and they actually think that they're the ones who came up with the idea of something, they're going to get after it much more than if you just give them a piece of paper without any discussion beforehand. Totally. And so again, you know, I asked all my clients to do this and I can see it like a decent number of them have. I would rather that, that they led the discussion for that reason because, you know, it's one thing for me to say, you answered this, therefore you must do why. And it's another thing for them to say, hey, like I really feel like, you know, having thought about this, these are the things that would suit me. If they if they come to me with that, um, with that response, then I feel like job done, you know, let's do it. Um, that's all that I've really got to say on this tool. Like I said, it's available on my Instagram through the link in my bio. In my IGTV, there's a little explanation of it, but you've listened to a whole podcast at this point about it, so you'll probably not need to watch that. Um, if you do do it and you have any questions or anything, just shoot me a message on Instagram. Um, Alex, unless you have more to say on this, I want to take a break and then we're going to come back and debut this new segment. What do you reckon? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Welcome back. We're going to debut a new segment now. It's called Do You Remember? So, yeah. Will, what sparked this one? Honestly, I was sitting in the surf. Um, I surf. Not well. I just like dropping that in conversation. I say like I surf and then I like mess with my hair as though it's got salt and sand in it. You're, you you don't look like a surfer. Like I certainly don't look like a surfer very, when I'm surfing. It's very dark features. Like, you know, like not the typical surfy long hair like short brown hair and big eyebrows not really much of a surfer yeah 100% kook spec as well but anyway I was I was in the surf and I actually thought of um, These Kids by Joel Turner um, you, you remember that song? yeah do you remember him on Australian Idol? Joel Turner was on Australian Idol yeah that's how he got found out I actually didn't know that okay well after this we'll watch his audition because it was sick okay um, but anyway that I was thinking of that and I was like man that is a throwback and then I was like you know what everyone loves throwbacks we should do a podcast segment about that. So I paddled in immediately, just didn't even catch a wave. I was so Too excited. many thoughts. You had to write this down. Yeah. So just, you know, left my board on the beach. Fuck it. I'll get a new one. <laughs> <laughs> Ran home um, and then messaged Alex and said, man, I thought of a podcast segment. So anyway, do you remember? We just throw out stuff that we might be a bit nostalgic about. Sometimes they'll be niche. Sometimes they won't be so niche. Just talk about stuff from the past. So I'm going to give you my so, one. How much do you know about Joel Turner? Honestly, only these kids. Trapped in a struggle. Really? Is that all you know about him? Okay, because yeah, he... So he's like a beatboxing legend. Yeah. And that's how... He, that's what he went on Australian Idol to do. <laughs> that's these kids. That sucked. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not Joel Turner. So he went, on, he went on Australian Idol to do beatboxing. Okay. And then they realized he could sing a little bit. So they let him through and he made it to like the top 20, I think. Okay. That's pretty mad. I actually didn't know that. Yeah. Anyway. Um, anyway. And I do like that song. Okay. So <laughs> my one for you, that's just a bonus one that everybody gets, Joel Turner. 
My one for you. Do you remember the Rugrats? Yeah, of course. How good are Rugrats? Yeah, there's twins on there, right? Yeah, yeah so Phil and Lil. So my sister and I used to always be the twins. Okay, that's pretty yeah. funny. Do you remember Reptile from the Rugrats? I don't remember. I don't. I honestly don't remember the intricate details of the Rugrats a lot. Do you remember the theme music? You know? Yes, yes, I do. Yeah, Rugrats was so funny. Um, what time? I, what time slot was it on? Oh, I don't know, man. That's a hard question. Do you know? I want to say like three thirty. It was definitely an after-school show. I want to say three thirty. It was like the thing that would be on when you would get home, maybe four o'clock, and it would be like just finishing as you got home. Yeah, I so want to say four o'clock. That honestly, it sounds really correct. Um, I loved the Rugrats, and I remember the Rugrats movie as well. So in the Rugrats movie. I think Tommy Pickles has a has a baby brother born, right? And remember his sister Angelica is a bit of a bitch. Um, even though she's three, she's just like super sassy. Um, so he has a younger brother born and I think they go to a theme park that is like reptile land. So reptile is the dinosaur that they all love. And I remember that because I loved dinosaurs when I was young. I wanted to be a paleontologist. And it's like they go on the reptile ride. You are Ross. <laughs> they go on the reptile ride. Has anyone ever said that to you before? <laughs> I'm hoping nobody's listening. <laughs> um, they go on the reptile ride and it like goes off the rails or something because it's a new theme park, Reptile Land. And they end up getting like, they crash into the wilderness and they get like attacked by a wolverine or something, um, which is bizarre. And they, uh, they get saved. I can't remember how they get saved. But point is... I was going to say, where is this going? Um, point is, trivia, that movie... I think it was the first animated movie to to gross more than like a Disney movie had um, or like as in from another studio um, to outgross a Disney movie. I'm going to look up the specific trivia, but it did it did something, um, something along those lines. So anyway, I love the Rugrats. What do you reckon? Yeah, like I definitely, I definitely do remember the, the Rugrats and I certainly liked them, but they were never like the thing that I was coming home looking forward to watching. Here we go. The Rugrats movie was the first non-Disney animated film to gross over $100 million at the box office. There you go. See, my go-to cartoons were Johnny Bravo. Great cartoon. And um, Dexter's Laboratory. Dexter's Laboratory is okay. Johnny Bravo is hilarious. Okay, moving on. Alex, your turn. Do you remember Tetris? <laughs> I do. I. You're really good at Tetris. I'm hey? exceptionally good at Tetris. Why do you think that is? I just used to play it heaps during school. No, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, we were allowed to use laptops in class from year 10 onwards. Or maybe year 9 onwards. And you just played Tetris. And I used to just sit in the back of the class playing Tetris. And like I played... I remember I had one game that lasted me the whole school day. Like obviously you can pause between yep. classes and stuff and like whenever you actually had to do work. But like I legit four or five hour straight game of Tetris. Does... Do the shapes come out in a certain order? Like, is there a pattern in no, Tetris? No, it's, it's random. So it's very luck bound. Well, no, you can you can see the next shape in the corner. Oh, I didn't before know it comes out. Okay. So you've obviously got the whole distance till the shape gets to the bottom to put it in place. Yeah. And then you can see the next one. So before you've even before you've even put that piece where it's supposed to go you know where the next piece is going right and when you get good at it you go like you can play like so quickly 
Right, so you can just basically say like, I need to make and space for one of those zigzaggy ones. And you don't even look. Like you don't even look. You just kind of see the color in the corner of your eye, and you you know what you you know where you're going to put it. Oh, they color coded. Yeah, I didn't know that either. So I remember with Tetris, like I don't know if you remember this Nintendo sixty four. That it was like there was frontline Nintendo sixty four titles that were all sick. And then there was always just some kind of shitty games that just got onto the console and they'd be like the free ones that came with it or whatever. And so there was like there was like Tetris 2 or something that came on Nintendo 64. And it was just basically you play Tetris on a Nintendo 64 so you're just joysticking things across. And that's so lame. I can't imagine shelling out to play that on a games console when I could play like Mario Kart. Well, that was like back when... That would probably would have been like just before Mario Kart, right? Like because there was like... The, there was like the the um, generation of games just before Nintendo 64 that were no, like no, this pretty is shit. on Nintendo 64 that oh, I'm saying okay. that existed. But um, but I actually don't know when in the Nintendo 64 life cycle Mario Kart came out. It has to be early. It would have been straight away. Yeah, they would have had a couple of big things for like on release. But Mario 64 was my favorite. It's a very the good one game. where you go and collect the stars. Yeah, that was the best. It's a really good game. Um. It's actually interesting if... I was going to say if you're into speedrunning. No one's into speedrunning. But there's this concept in video games called speedrunning where you try and finish a game as quickly as you can, right? Um, and they'll have, depending on the games, different categories because like often you can you can use glitches and things to finish things really quickly. And in Mario Kart... I'm sorry, Mario 64 is like the most speedrun game of all time. So there's, there's a huge number of glitches. So they've got multiple categories of like of you know what you can do and they basically see how much people can optimize within it but because it's the most speedrun game in history people have absolutely 100% optimized how to play that game and so you can go on YouTube and look up like things of people getting all the stars in Mario in like a couple of hours or whatever wow. and you don't have to watch a couple of hours of it there'll be people who make like a 10 minute speedrun like video explaining like this is how this person navigated through and got all these stars and you watch them do it and you're like, oh my God, like they're just so smart. It's really cool. See, like I I spent like so many years of my childhood trying to complete that game and I never actually did. <laughs> and this was well before like you could just Google how to finish a game. Like you had to like nut down and figure it out. Yeah, there's, it's a funny thing about that, right? Um, the one that comes to mind is in Pokemon. Um, but there was definitely a culture back then because like the internet was less of a thing where like finding out information about games and, and you know how you can beat certain stuff and where the easter eggs were and stuff in the games was much, much harder but in Pokemon um, I don't know if you remember in Pokemon Red, Blue and Yellow people used to say that you could get a Mew without, um, without like glitching the game which is not true um, and one of the ways they said you could do it was if you played the game like a little bit out of its intended order. You could go and get the surf HM, the thing that lets you go on the water before you go on the SSM, which is the boat where you get the cut TM um, for anybody who knows about this. And so the idea was if you did that, which is pretty annoying and out of your way, then you could surf off to the left um, when you're walking onto the ship because you only get to access that area once. And if you do that, there's a car and then you can push the car and behind it, there's a mute. And everybody just believed it because people were like, wow, okay, that sounds like an intricate set of steps to find this Easter egg. And so people would go and try and do that shit and then it wouldn't work. What, um, what is there? There is actually just a car there randomly. Oh. Um, I think. Yeah. yeah. When, 
I got the I got this magazine. Well, it was like this. It was like this booklet on Pokemon for Christmas one year. Yeah, and it had every map in it. It had like a where each Pokemon is yeah. found. Well, yeah, where each Pokemon is found, like the map for every route, um, like all the evolutions when they evolve, when they learn certain tricks and stuff. Yeah, it was mad. Yeah, that's actually pretty sick. Yeah, it was so good. Anyway, that's do you remember? Let us know if you liked that segment. If you didn't like that segment, get fucked. Um, if you did like it though and you want us to do it you can also leave on the audience request form do you remember topics for us and we'll probably pick one a week ongoing if we get if we get good ones let's go listen to Joel Turner's audition alright we're gonna do that guys we'll talk to you next week